right. Thank you for leading us, and hopefully the uh, times of singing and prayer and encouragement to you as we prepare for our time of study this morning. I want to invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we kind of just barely got started last week, and we'll continue with uh, a study more in depth today of the first three verses. In thinking about the larger study of this section dealing with spiritual gifts primarily, um, I wonder if you've thought carefully or not about what might be a bit of an obvious question, maybe the kind of question that you don't really feel like you need to think about because it just seems like it's just innate or just uh, it's something that's happening a bit organically in your life as a believer and and in your life as someone who is joined together with other believers in the context of this church. But I wonder if you've ever considered the question, how do you discern whether or not someone is genuinely spiritual? What are the things that you are looking for, listening for, observing? When you think about the life of our church, how do you determine Or what kinds of reflections or thought processes or observations do you make that give you an indication that someone is truly of the Spirit or they are behaving or speaking in the Spirit of God or maybe they're not? I think that one of the things that is interesting to consider Uh, In a church like ours or in any other church, and certainly when you think about the implications of this from our study in 1 Corinthians, it's not uncommon for us to ascribe to other people spiritual depth, spiritual maturity, some kind of spiritual status based upon what you might really only consider to be external and rather limited observations. In fact, the more overt someone's uh, exhibition of spiritual speech might be, the more spiritual you might consider them to be insofar as their ability to communicate or speak about biblical truth or about doctrine or what have you, you might ascribe to them more innately spiritual status. This happens all the time in churches. Sadly, it happens in churches where those who are given a place of quote-unquote spiritual authority and who are in posts or roles in which they are sort of leveraging that spiritual authority in public manners like teaching and preaching and that kind of thing, time and time again what is discovered at some point along the way is that regardless of how accurate, how biblically sound, how um, thoughtful and reflective, how locutious their ability to convey spiritual truth is, at some point along the way, something very different becomes known. Or another sort of angle on that is that those that might know that individual best are living under a burden 
Because what they know of this person is in conflict with what they know most everybody else knows of this person. And so they wrestle with their own sense of discernment. Maybe they're getting it wrong. Maybe they're the one that needs to course correct. The fact of the matter is, is that answering this question, how do we discern spirituality or how do we discern true spirituality or speech and action that is in accord with the Spirit is a pretty important question for believers who gather together in a local church. The fact of the matter is, is that the venues in which you are able to observe someone demonstrating some kind of spiritual speech, some kind of thoughtfulness around biblical truth and then conveying it in some way, the venues for that are really rather limited, are they not? I mean, there's only a few adult Bible study classes that are occurring on Sundays. There's usually one person. We usually don't have like two or three people up there preaching a sermon on Sundays, you know, doing a tag team. I don't think we ever do that. Uh, In other words, the the opportunities for that to happen are, are rather limited. So, It would stand to reason that there has to be more to it than just observing someone exhibiting certain characteristics, certain gifts, certain skill in one particular very narrow venue to be the only determiner of someone's authentic, genuine spirituality. And of course, in the life of the church at Corinth, This was the seminal question that was in view, that runs throughout the entire letter. What is true spirituality? what, what, What constitutes someone being truly spiritual? And sadly, as we have seen through the course of this study, what the Corinthians fell into, the trap that they fell into, was just what I've been alluding to, and that's the trap of ascribing to people spiritual maturity, spiritual depth, or spiritual legitimacy and authority based upon primarily external qualities, external exhibitions. A lot of it centered around this matter of speech, of attention-getting rhetoric and that kind of thing. We talked about this reemergence of sophistry in the first century and in Corinth and how it was more about being able to carry a room through the articulation of something rather than the content of what was actually being said. Being able to capture the attention of an audience, hold that attention through rhetorical skill, through oratory cleverness, rather than a real careful and thoughtful reflection upon the content of what was being said and certainly not any reflection upon the character of the speaker. There were people in first century Corinth that were able to carry a certain celebrity status because of their skills in these areas. They were entertainers of the day. They were the celebrities of the day. And and the church in Corinth was susceptible to sort of breathing that air. I mean, they came out of that culture. They were fully bought in to that whole way of thinking and living. And so they were susceptible to ascribing to others or possibly even ascribing to themselves 
spiritual weight, spiritual depth, spiritual authority based solely upon their capacity to captivate, to win friends and influence people, if you want to use sort of a common or sort of more, more contemporary uh, uh, title, book title, if you will. And so this is a little bit of the backdrop, reminding us a little bit of the context of what the Apostle Paul is speaking into as it relates particularly to this matter of spiritual gifts. And as we talked about last week, we see here in these first three verses this focus upon Paul's desire for them to understand the nature of spiritual gifts, the source of spiritual gifts, the purpose of spiritual gifts, the proper demonstration or use of spiritual gifts. In other words, his focus is upon moving them from something that they apparently don't know and don't understand to what they need to know and must understand to be faithful in their operation in the gifts in the life of the church. So let's pick up the passage in verse 1, and we'll just read again the first three verses, reminding ourselves of what we just barely began to touch on last week in the text. He says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, looking at this introductory few verses that's going to launch us into this much more in-depth and broad and sweeping study of spiritual gifts throughout the rest of chapter 12 and all the way through chapter 14, these few verses sort of create for us a framework or you might say a context or a bit of a background, a backdrop from which we can properly proceed forward into the rest of the study and and have the, the content of what we look into going forward make sense or resonate with what is Paul's primary thrust in his instruction here. And what we see right out of the jump is that the Apostle Paul is clearly dealing with spiritual confusion. There are three things that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. And the first one that I want us to kind of just take note of is he's dealing with this matter of spiritual confusion. He says right there in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I do not want you to be ignorant. I do not want you to be not knowing. There was, this, there was this reality, this presence of some ignorance, of some confusion. There was something that was in play in the church in Corinth that was lacking clarity at minimum. Now, this opening phrase, now concerning, the reason that one of the tips for us to understand this is, is this opening phrase, now concerning, is a reference to the contents of a letter that he had received from them. The Corinthians had sent the Apostle Paul a letter, and in that letter they raised a range of questions and concerns that were really provoked by stated convictions and and even overtly uh, commonly practiced rituals and, and, and spiritual activity and moral activity within the life of the church that was raising some level of concern, but But the way in which the questions are posed or the way in which the Apostle Paul seeks to answer these questions clearly indicates that they're they're confused about it. 
You, you see it begin really in chapter 7. It, it's interesting when you look at the, the entire letter, you note that there's this combination of things going on in the letter. You have the Apostle Paul responding to reports that he's received. I mean, the very opening chapter, he talks about the divisions that are among them because he heard it from Chloe's people. And then in chapter 5, I believe, he talks about something that was reported to him. But then in chapter 7, he explicitly refers to uh, a letter. He says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And he proceeds to discuss the first of those matters. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. And then this discussion continues on through chapter 10, or literally through chapter 11, verse 1, is where that section really wraps up. And then here you get to chapter 11, or excuse me, uh, chapter 11, verses 2 and following. He says, now I commend you. And then he says, but I want you to understand. So every point in, in, this, in these chapters where he begins with now this and now that and now this, it, it ties back to what he starts in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So what we see here is the Apostle Paul is dealing with something or addressing something that the actual Corinthians raised to him in a letter. There was something going on in the life of the church that raised enough concern that they wrote about it and they inquired about it to get some clarification from the Apostle Paul. In all of these chapters, we see Paul addressing these questions raised. Chapter 7, concerning marriage, divorce, singleness, and widowhood. Chapters 8 through 10, concerning Christian liberties, or, or in the context, food offered to idols. And then chapter 11, it was concerning male and female distinctions in the context of worship and that whole matter of head coverings. So in all these chapters and all these sections, he's addressing specific questions that were raised by them. But what becomes clear, and it becomes clear in this section as well that we're going to be looking at, is that when you read the chapters, when you start working your way through the chapters, it's clear that the Corinthians were not merely asking Paul questions out of some kind of benign theological curiosity. They weren't just sort of trying to learn a little bit more. You know, I, I'm starting to kind of understand about spiritual gifts, and, you know, I was wondering a, a few more things. I got a few more questions about it. In every one of these sections, what you find is that the Apostle Paul is having to say, no, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Redirect. Course correct. Rebuke. There was confusion, profound confusion that he was having to deal with and contend with. There was profound confusion in all of these various areas. And so when we get to chapter 12, this is prominent in chapters 12 through 14. This confusion over the manifestation of true spirituality, and in particular the manifestation of that spirituality in the context of gifts that are being used in the life of the church. They are confused, perplexed, and they're seeking the Apostle Paul's help. And again, what you see as you look at all these chapters that, that continue on after this now concerning indicator, is you see that these believers are not just concerned about something that they've been reflecting upon. The concern is centered around 
stated convictions, stated beliefs, stated conclusions that people in the church had drawn about a particular practice or doctrinal matter, and their concern was over the practices that ensued as a result of those stated convictions. So so the Apostle Paul is having to deal not just with curiosity or just simple clarification. He's dealing with confusion in the life of the church that was rooted in erroneous convictions being espoused. You could even say being taught or propagated in some way in the life of the church. And practices in the life of the church that were associated with or that sprung out of those convictions... And as those convictions and their corresponding practices were manifest in the life of the church, it only spawned more confusion and contention. So it prompts this writing of the letter. These these believers who wrote this letter obviously knew something wasn't right. Something was off. But it's quite likely that they weren't mature enough yet to really confidently address these matters, certainly not address them internally with their fellow believers. They didn't have the confidence or the maturity or the the depth of knowledge of doctrine to be able to address them on their own, so they're reaching out the Apostle Paul for this kind of help. Think about this for a moment. This is a really, I think, helpful principle for us to kind of latch on to for a moment. If you go back to chapter 1, and you look at the very beginning of this letter, in the Apostle Paul's salutation, his opening remarks to the Corinthians, he says this, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. In the opening remarks, in the salutation to the Corinthians, he identifies them as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, who are called to be saints, and that their salvation is of a substantive nature, so much so that it identifies them with all those everywhere who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a staggering reminder, is it not? When you think about all that we've studied, and all that we've dealt with, and all that we've seen the Apostle Paul have to contend with, of the things that were going on in the life of this church, and yet we go back to this opening salutation and we see the Apostle Paul identifying them as those who are sanctified, those who are called, those who are legitimately identified with believers everywhere. Not only that, but in his thanksgiving remarks, you go down to verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ uh, was conformed among you, excuse me, confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Layer upon layer of affirmation, or I should say confirmation, of their standing in Christ Jesus as His people, His called people, His sanctified people, His grace-received people, His gifted people. 
This is a stunning statement, but but notice what he says in chapter 3 about these same people that we're now looking at in chapter 12. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? There it is. They were given the gospel. God was gracious, called them to himself, sanctified them in Christ Jesus, gifted them in every way identified them with the rest of his people, named everywhere among them. And yet, they were languishing in immaturity. And that immaturity was evidenced by their continued jealousy and strife among them. And this is what's on full display in chapters 12 through 14. What you have in chapters 12 through 14 is Paul's going after the manifestation of this kind of immaturity that prevented him from speaking to them as adults, but he had to speak to them as infants. And the reason why was that there was still jealousy and strife among them that was the only evidence he needed of their continued immaturity. So you have in Corinth, just imagine the scene, you have in Corinth people who believe themselves to be uniquely spiritual, of an elite level of spirituality, and the Apostle Paul is going after them with just the exact opposite frame of mind regarding them. These are not people who are conducting themselves in true spiritual maturity. There's something very different going on. And this is a really good reminder for us, actually. In every church, there are true believers who have been called by God into salvation purely as a demonstration of His grace, by the way, same as you and me. And they are indwelled by the Spirit of God like every believer who is called is. They've been granted the means of spiritual growth and sanctification, and they've been even granted a measure of spiritual knowledge and a measure of discernment. And yet, at the same time, they're immature. They lack maybe a depth of understanding of certain doctrine and how it should be worked out in the life of the church or individually how it should be applied in their lives. So they may be able to discern a problem. Something's not right. They are called. They are sanctified. They are indwelled by the Spirit. Yet they're immature, so they may not necessarily know how to define the problem. In fact, they may see the problem and think that they're the ones with the actual problem because they're immature. And certainly in churches, if you have 
some very strong, and when I say strong, I mean like sort of authoritarian types of leaders who, who sort of want to put their, you know, their prowess of leadership and communication and whatnot, they're, they're eager to put that on display. And, and more, more problematically, they're eager to be the recipient of praise when they've moved the people according to their intent. So you can imagine immature believers in that kind of environment, and there's something not right, but who are they to question? Who are they to call anybody out? This is a uniquely perplexing situation. They're able to discern a problem. They can't necessarily define it, nor do they feel confident to address it. They don't have a depth of conviction that is born out of a deeper understanding of the truth. And so they're like, they cry uncle, Paul, something's not right. Help us. And if this is the state of many in a church, like the hope is that this might be a part of a small constituency in the life of a church, an understandable as yet still growing and maturing constituency in a church, but if this becomes the characteristic of many in the church, then it's pretty easy to see how confusion and tension and even open friction can develop, right? Something's not right. I know something's not right. That sense of discernment that is born by the Spirit of God Himself who resides in me as a true believer, is is prompting me and provoking me and giving me a sense that something's not right. But I don't have the maturity, I don't have the depth of knowledge, so if I continue to get provoked, I'm going to be just calling people out without any real help to them. I'm going to be reacting emotionally. I'm I'm going to be looking for comfort or peace or something. So you can imagine in a church like this, you've got people who are sort of driven by arrogance and by pompousness and by public recognition. You've got a generally immature congregation to begin with. I mean, the Apostle Paul had only been with them for 18 months. This is still a new church, new believers. When you consider what they were saved out of, you can only imagine how difficult that growth process would be. And that maturity process would be. So as we look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, can you now see, Paul is dealing with some profound confusion. Like it's running deep in the life of the church. It's having a, a significant impact on a whole number of people at a whole bunch of different levels of understanding and maturity. And it's having an impact in such a way that it is provoking and perpetuating the jealousy and the strife. And it's perpetuating the wrong kinds of criteria in which one would judge and discern someone's authentic or genuine spirituality. Spiritual confusion is a major, major backdrop to this particular study. Well, not only Paul is Paul dealing with profound spiritual confusion... But he's also cautioning against spiritual compulsion. 
Now, I use the term spiritual here not to refer to Holy Spirit spiritual, but man spiritual, or you might even say demonic spiritual, something other than the Spirit of God spiritual. Spiritual compulsion. In verse 2, he says, You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. This is a statement about compulsion of a spiritual type. Spiritual compulsion here. This term led astray, apago is the, is the Greek word. It means to be led or moved from one place to another under compulsion. It's like the picture is like a prisoner or, or a condemned man being led to their execution. That's, that's the sense of this particular word. So these are people who in their former life, in their unredeemed life, in their idolatrous practices and in their culture of pagan idolatrous worship, it wasn't that they just engaged in the licentious revelry of pagan worship in that day and time. The, the picture here that the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, gives us is that they were like a condemned man being led to their execution. They were under that kind of compulsion. And so the Apostle Paul is basically firing this warning shot over their bow to let them know that, that this could be happening again. This kind, of, this kind of pull, this kind of compulsion, you're not out of the woods yet, he would say. The Corinthians, as we've already alluded to, they were saved out of a comprehensively pagan, idolatrous, sensual, immoral culture and lifestyle. So you have to imagine the compulsions back into those habits were intense. And we've already seen that in the study. We've already seen evidences of that. You have, I mean, in chapter 5, where he's dealing with this man who is caught in a form of sexual immorality that's not even named among the pagans, it says. He has his mother's wife. And, and the grave rebuke comes to, not specifically, initially, the man engaged in the activity, but the rest of the congregation that is tolerating it. I mean, their, their lack of, their, their um, susceptibility to compulsion back into old ways of thinking, into old ways of behaving and I mean, it was significant. And we see this over and over again. Chapter 6, taking brothers to court. The whole chapter is dealing with, you're, you're, you're trying to settle matters in a, in a worldly court instead of within the church. You're suing your brother or your sister over petty things. Well, that was commonplace in that culture. That was just normal. That was just what you did. Over and over and over again throughout this letter, you see this this. Uh, these examples of the Corinthians being compelled, spiritually compelled, toward habits and practices that were characteristic of their unredeemed life. And so as it relates to this matter of spiritual gifts, same thing. He's dealing with matters of spiritual compulsion, of of an ungodly type. And throughout this letter, we we see Paul referring to the Corinthians' former way of life. And he does this to highlight how utterly unbecoming it is for them to act these ways and to think these ways. 
It's, it's a thread that runs throughout the entire letter. It's, it's as though the Apostle Paul is saying over and over again, this is who you are in Christ, so why are you still compelled to think and in some ways to live like the foolish pagan idolaters you used to be? We see him do this over and over again throughout this letter. So in this study of, of spiritual gifts in chapters 12 through 14, what the Apostle Paul is having to contend with is not only this confusion, but this, this compulsion, this compulsion to behave or think like a pagan idolater. It's interesting. I want, I'm going to just take a, a, a little pause here for just a moment as I, as I kind of run through these first three verses to sort of set the backdrop for this study. Isn't it interesting to consider this backdrop, which I've got one more point, by the way. We're not done yet. This backdrop compared to what is often the focus in going to sections of chapters 12 through 14. The focus oftentimes is, what is my spiritual gift? How do I know what my gift is? I took a spiritual gifts test, and it said this, this, and this. And let me go back and confirm what that's supposed to look like. That's oftentimes what it's about. Or it's to go to these passages of Scripture to say, see, there it is. We're supposed to be speaking in tongues and performing miracles, and everybody should be healed all the time because that's what the church does. And that's typically what you see these chapters used to either sort of answer these little tedious questions about my gift and how I can use my gift, or to justify a particular doctrinal conviction or position that is not even taking this backdrop or this context into consideration in trying to interpret what the Spirit has revealed in the text. So the Apostle Paul is dealing with confusion. He's dealing with this spiritual compulsion And in this particular instance, it's interesting to note, Paul is basically forecasting this concern that has to do with their understanding and their practice of what you could just refer to as spiritually gifted utterances, spiritually gifted speech. And and apparently... What he's alluding to here is that what was on display more times than not in the church at Corinth was that these utterances, these quote-unquote spiritual gifts involving speech of some kind, were more reflective of their worship of mute idols than it is reflective of true spiritual life brought by Christ through the Spirit of God. And so... This emphasis on speech is is on display here. And, and, And the Apostle Paul is going to deal extensively and has been already in this letter. What constitutes true spirit enabled speech? I mean, if you go back to chapter 2, in chapters 2, verses 1 to 5, he says, And when I came to you, brothers, 
I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were implausible words of wisdom, excuse me, were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. From the very beginning, the Apostle Paul is gravely concerned about the Corinthians' lack of understanding of what constitutes true spiritual speech, true spiritual wisdom that is conveyed in spiritual words. He'll go on to talk about that as you continue on, even into chapter 3. And you look here in in chapter 12 again, and you'll notice, starting in verse 8, he's beginning to sort of enumerates certain of the gifts. And he says in verse 8, To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. And then in chapter 12, verse 10, he talks about prophecy and tongues and the interpretation of tongues. And then you get to chapter 13, which is this stabilizing, balancing kind of chapter, this great chapter on love. And in the first two verses, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And then all of chapter 14 deals with tongues and prophecy. So this emphasis on utterance, on speech, on what constitutes truly spirit-enabled, spirit-given speech is a major point of focus in the entire study. It's not exclusive of everything else, but it's clearly the predominant focus. And so when you get back here to this section in chapters 12, verses 1 to 3, Paul's reference here to their being led astray to mute idols is, as I said, it's a warning shot to them. Because they were engaged in the kind of, quote, spiritual speech that, in a sense, they had to conjure up themselves. As we talked about last week, this reference to mute idols means that they're inanimate. They, they don't speak. So whatever utterances that corresponded to your ecstatic exhibitions of pagan idolatrous worship, you conjured that up, or something other than the Spirit of God conjured that up. That's the point. These are mute idols. So all of your revelry and all of your ecstatic utterances and all of your this and that that you were saying and speaking and uttering in your pagan worship... It wasn't the mute idol that did that. Anthony Thistleton, in his commentary, says this about this particular passage. He says, Paul alludes by implication to pagan religions where claims to be, quote, spiritual differ from this in two radical ways. First, spirituality may be self-induced. Idols cannot be the source of spirituality. They are incapable of speech and cannot inspire. And second, where the Spirit is active, believers will confess Jesus as Lord and live out the Lordship of Jesus in a way that led to constructive building up of others, not their destruction or competitive degeneration. So what we see here is that the Apostle Paul 
is contending with their compulsion toward a kind of spirituality that was akin to their worship of dumb, mute idols. And the penetrating truth of that is that their utterances were self-manufactured and or demonic in nature. They were not of the Spirit. That's the warning shot that he's firing over their bow. So he's dealing with spiritual confusion, spiritual compulsion, and then finally he's dealing with spiritual counterfeits. Verse 3, spiritual counterfeits. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now clearly, uh, there were in the church at Corinth those who claimed, and probably claimed in a self-referential, arrogant way, that they were speaking for God by the power of His Spirit. Okay, that, that's clear. However, the content of their speech was obviously something that the Holy Spirit would never utter. And therein lies the stark contention. Jesus is accursed? What? What is this all about? Some would argue, some commentators would argue or say that that this is merely just a a part of the ecstatic ecstatic utterances that that could occur in these exhibitions of trance-like worship that was common in the mystery religions and in pagan idolatrous worship activities. It, It was often accompanied by drunkenness, it was accompanied by really a giving over of your, your senses and of your mind and of your rational faculties to just the moment of ecstatic expression in worship. Uh, it led to all kinds of illicit practices, as we've talked about in the past in the context of worship. But we've already seen, have we not, in our study of chapter 11, that these believers in Corinth were actually coming around the Lord's table and were getting drunk. And they were excluding lesser well-to-do brothers and sisters who didn't have food from the food that they had brought to share in the meal. And they were turning the Lord's table into this sort of drunken revelry. So if they're, if they're capable of being compelled toward that type of idolatrous-like practice when they come around the love feast, as it was known, the Lord's table. I mean, imagine how that might manifest when that's not what the focal point is. And so some would say that that it was not unrealistic that they would find themselves engaged in possibly even a, a drunken, induced, ecstatic expression that was similar to what you would see in any other kind of idolatrous, pagan worship practice of that time and the mystery religions of that time. John MacArthur in his commentary says this, Satan spends a lot of time in church. Let's say that again. Satan spends a lot of time in church. Nowhere is he more anxious to pervert God's people than where they are worshiping. Some members of the church at Corinth apparently became so fleshly and confused and their worship so paganized and frenzied that they even allowed the Lord to be cursed within their own congregation. A little bit later on in this section he says, It is possible that the person who called Jesus accursed was Jewish, 
Because the law taught that a person who is hanged on a tree is accursed of God. That's from Deuteronomy 21. And many Jews considered Jesus to have been cursed by being crucified. So the implication here from what MacArthur is saying is that you could have either a pagan Gentile saved out of that lifestyle and that culture and that form of worship and practice into the church and into the body of Christ at Corinth, and, and they were slipping into this idolatrous kind of frenzied, ecstatic kind of practice, and, and, and out of being kind of out of their minds, were saying things like, Jesus is accursed. Really, the point is saying something that the Spirit would never say. Or it could be Jewish believers who, in like manner, were saying something erroneous about Jesus in an effort to restate or reinterpret or reimagine Old Testament principles from Deuteronomy. It's hard to know specifically. There's one other uh, possibility that I think is, is interesting and, and, and rather compelling to consider when you just talk about the specifics here of you know, Jesus is a curse versus Jesus is Lord. Uh, it's it's, a, it's a, a thought put forward by Bruce Winter, and I'm just going to read a, another commentator's summary of Bruce Winter's um, conclusions on this. Anthony Thistleton is summarizing Winter's um, thesis. He says, the key to Winter's new interpretation is twofold. First, because the Greek contains no verb but simply has Jesus anathema, that's, that's the literal Greek. There is no Jesus is a curse. It just says, it just says Jesus anathema. Uh, it, it may be that it's, uh, the translation need not be Jesus is a curse or is a curse. It may be Jesus grants a curse. Second, in recent years, some 27 ancient curse tablets made of lead have been unearthed in, in, in or around Corinth. And these witness to the practice of appealing to pagan deities to curse rivals or competitors in business, love, litigation, or sport. So Winter is saying there's been this discovery in recent years of these tablets that have this curse motif on them. And it was, they were discovered in and around Corinth. And so it could be that there's something related to that. So Winter argues that the allusion to when you were pagans, you used to be carried away to idols, in verse 2, refers not to some bogus spirituality of pagan religious frenzy or ecstasy, but to the religious world in which pagan worshipers sought the aid of their deities to gain advantage over rivals and competitors in various areas of life. Winter argues that within the setting of Corinth, attitudes of jealousy and strife might manifest themselves in explicit requests for the deity to set in motion a curse imposed upon those over whom the pagan worshiper sought to gain advantage. In the light of chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, and chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, and other passages, it is plausible that some Christians claim to be, quote, spiritual people at the same time as asking Jesus to impose some curse of this order against those who had earned their disfavor. Paul declares that this contradicts any claim that the Holy Spirit is manifest in their life, and this cannot build or manifest Christ's lordship. Could be. Could be. The bottom line is that the Apostle Paul is, is pointing out that there, is, there are spiritual counterfeits in play. 
There are those that would claim to speak for God and might even be able to hold sway over people who are actual believers. Again, that's why I took you to chapter 1. So that we can understand that the, the context of Paul's instruction is that it's teaching believers. Though immature, though, though lacking some knowledge, though, though lacking some discernment, it's still nonetheless believers here who, who might have been held, held sway over by legitimately articulate people who could hold a room and who were claiming, who were in their midst and who were part of the fellowship and, and made some kind of confession of faith, maybe were baptized, maybe were a close associates of Paul when he was with them. I mean, who knows what the social dynamics were? Who knows what the observed interactions might have been for them? But nonetheless, they were influenced by these people. And so then these people began to articulate things that the Spirit of God would never articulate. And the Apostle Paul is saying, counterfeit. There are counterfeits. And in the life of the church, and in particular, in a church where the emphasis is upon demonstrative, phenomenal exhibitions as a marker, as an indisputable marker of true and authentic spirituality, it stands to reason that these counterfeits would not be recognized as counterfeits. So the Apostle Paul is taking them directly to the content. In other words, as we talked about last time, spiritual utterance is spiritual only insofar as that it's in accord with what God himself has objectively revealed in his word and in his son. It is not something that's going to come as an ad hoc, extemporaneous, sort of, the Lord spoke to me today and told me to tell you, do this or do that, kind of utterance. Now, I would just remind us that what we see over and over again in the excesses of this, not, not, every, not every person who might be uh, involved in a church or whatever, a, a system of belief or a doctrinal conviction about uh, gifts, in particular gifts of prophecy and tongues and that kind of thing. Not all are characterized by extreme excess. I don't want to paint with that broad of a brush. But unfortunately, the pendulum swings often in that direction. In other words, the slope in that direction is very, very slippery because so much is riding upon the wrong kind of markers for ascertaining genuine spirituality. The wrong kind of tests. And so the Apostle Paul is cautioning us to say, listen, not only is there a tendency toward confusion, not only do we have to be guarded against compulsion toward unredeemed ways, but there are counterfeits. And we need to be discerning about recognizing them. And the prominent point of recognition has nothing to do with the oratory power of a speaker. It has to do with the content's alignment with revealed truth. And that's it. Well, let's pray together and we'll uh, pick this back up next week.